I think it's important to be in a life group just for the connectivity. Uh, we're meant to be Christians in a community. We're meant to live together, work together, serve together, help each other, bear each other's burdens. And we do that in a life group. There's um, somebody to talk to about um, just to get another point of view on, on things that you might be struggling with or not understanding regarding uh, things that you might come across in the Bible or questions you might have even about God. Um, it's just good to have um, another set of eyes. We feel more connected to our neighborhood, to our neighbors, and to this church because we're able to uh, stay grounded and really hold us accountable as well and then obviously develop some good friendships. A lot of times in um, social situations, it can be kind of awkward to talk about spiritual things, but I know that I could do that process, learn, grow, and share with my life group members. It's also a way for us to serve together. Um, we've been involved in several projects, and um, to do it together just makes it so much more meaningful, rewarding, and fun. It's very helpful to be able to meet with other people who uh, are open about their problems and um, and that you feel comfortable discussing your problems with it becomes like your extended family. All right, well, speaking of family, it's good to be back to this family. So I really, really am glad to be back. And, uh, and I really want to thank you also for praying for me while I was on break. Two things need to happen for it to be a good break. Part of it is about restoration, the restorative part, and part of it is about production as I plan for the year. And it, it needs to be really, really productive. And this one, more than I can remember in years, uh, did great at doing both. And I believe that happened because of your prayers for me. And I, I really felt sort of the, the presence of that, presence of God because of your prayers in a unique way. So thank you. And uh, yeah, praise God for you and for that. And it is good to be back, right? I mean, I, it is good to want to be back. <laughs> I'm so thankful for that, too. That tells you it's a good break. And, uh, and yet before, when, when I left, uh, the weekend that I left for break, I spoke. And uh, right after that service, I, I left that uh, afternoon for Alabama, where I was at part of it. Um, I had a terrible conversation with a Chase Oker. I hated it. Um, because this conversation with a Chase Oker after the service was about him saying, hey, this is our last weekend at Chase Oaks. They were moving. Uh, he got another job moving out of the of the area. And he's like, oh, man, I hate it. Can you know help me find a church, you know, where I'm going and all that. And uh, and I always hate that conversation because I never, you know, we're a family, right? Just hate for that to happen. Um, but this was Haley. And Haley, I've known a long time, 26 years, actually, I've known Haley. Some of you at the Legacy Campus may have prayed with Haley. He's on our care team that, uh, that are around the, the stage after the service. And maybe he's prayed with you, really great guy. But when I met Haley 26 years ago, he was not a Chase Oker. The way I met Haley is he was my scuba dive buddy, my dive buddy, when I took certification classes 26 years ago, I had to learn how to scuba dive. It was about a six or eight week process. I can't remember how long, culminating in a weekend in Austin where you, you know, do all these dives and stuff like that. So we got to know each other pretty well. And the concept of a dive buddy and scuba diving is a really, really big deal. Uh, scuba diving is not one of those things you want to do alone. And there's a hundred reasons for that or more, both safety as well as enjoyment. And we saw that right away in our training. Uh, not long after the class started, uh, we were 
you know, buddied up. And so Haley and I were scuba buddies. And one of the first things we did in the class is we got in the pool at the facility, which was 20 feet deep pool. So we were in the deep end and you have to tread water for 10 minutes uh, to get certified to make sure, you know, you can do that. And so we were we were all in there treading water and we'd just gotten in. We were in maybe a minute or so. And then this guy I hadn't seen before came in. I guess he was new in our class, came in uh, to get in the water. And he was remarkable to me because he was the way I want to look when I don't have a shirt on. Uh, I don't look like that, but in my mind, I would love to look like that. Like he, he's just perfect. And some of you think I like the way I look. He looked better. He was, I mean, just perfect. I'm telling you, I mean, everything just 24 pack. And it, you know, it's like, wow, all muscles, zero body fat. So he just, we're already in the pool, been in there about a minute or so. And he jumps in again, 20 feet deep. He jumps in and just like a rock, I guess all that muscle just goes straight to the bottom. And we're thinking, oh, that's interesting because he's down there a little while. So we're, you know, treading water and just, you know, kind of looking down. And after about 30 seconds goes by, you're like, huh, you know, I wonder what his deal is down there. And then after about a minute, you know, you start thinking, wow, that guy can really hold his breath. I mean, it's impressive. And um, and then after about two minutes, like getting a little concerned. Right. And so so somebody says, hey, who's his buddy? Nobody was his buddy because he was new. He'd just come into the class. And then by this time, there's like three minutes have gone by. Four minutes have gone by and people are like, hey, I think he's in trouble. So people went down, you know, he was just right below him, went down, got him, pulled him up. And sure enough, he was in trouble. They had to pull him on the side, do mouth to mouth. I remember, you know, water. Like we're still treading water, kind of looking up to see what it looks like. And, uh, and, and you know how water gushes out of lungs, if you've seen that. I mean, that whole thing happened. Like he was, I guess, dead or almost dead. And they brought him back and all that happened. Because he didn't have a buddy. He had nobody that looked out for him and it was therefore easy to drown. It was a great reminder why scuba diving is not one of those things you want to do alone. But the Bible is really clear that life is the same way. And actually, the life above water is even trickier than life below water. And the only way you and I can flourish in life is connected, not disconnected. We have to have life buddies, uh, not just scuba buddies. In fact, the Bible is really clear about that when it comes to living the Christian life, that you and I cannot live the Christian life alone. It's impossible. You and I cannot become the people that God wants us to become talking about growth. We cannot accomplish what he wants us to accomplish our calling alone. As Paul said, one of the ways he said it in the New Testament is the body. That's us. We're all connected as parts of the body. The body grows as it builds itself up in love as each member does its part. Meaning we grow together. We can't grow alone. We can't grow in an isolated way. We need life buddies. And I think most of us know, yeah, that, that's, I guess that's true. That, that makes sense, you know, to have really deep connections like that. But it's really rare in our culture to have it. Because we don't live in a culture that facilitates Deep and real connection. People who are with us and for us in life in a profound way. Uh, just the way we live life. We're so busy. We're not busy. We're looking at screens, you know, often. And relationships aren't like Netflix. You know, Netflix is pretty demanding. You know, when you start a series, you know, you finish the first episode. And what happens? Automatically, 15 seconds. Episode two. And you're like, yeah, I could do that. You know, and then, and then after episode two, 15 seconds, episode three, you're like, I really shouldn't, but, you know, I really want to find out, right? But relationships aren't like that. Your relationships don't have a little thing that comes up in 15 seconds. 
We're going to have another meaningful conversation. You know, bing, bing, bing. it doesn't do that, right? It doesn't suck you in the same way. And we're just, we're, we're pulled away from that kind of connection. It's, and it's a dangerous thing. Um, Solomon in the Old Testament said this in Proverbs, a man with many acquaintances, that's easy. We, we have lots of acquaintances, lots of shallow relationships. That's easy. A man with many acquaintances may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That's the kind of relationships we're talking about. Acquaintances are like us, you know, treading water, looking down and thinking, oh, I wonder what his deal is. Right. He needed a friend that wouldn't let him drown. And that's what you and I need as well in life. And today we're going to talk about that because uh, it, it's such a big concern of Jesus. Um, Jesus, when he was on this planet, formed a group, a small group, a ministry team and a small group at the same time. These people we call the disciples. And they did life together and pursued life together, did ministry together, encouraged each other. And so they were in Jesus's small group, which would be pretty cool, right? If you're going to choose a small group, hey, he wants to be in Jesus's. would be like, yeah, I'll do that. You know, right? That'd be a little intimidating, but yeah, that'd be great. And they were with him for all those years. So he's he's just about to go to the cross like this is the last little it's called the Last Supper, a time that he spends with his disciples before he's going to be arrested and then crucified on the cross, die for the sins of the world. Then three days later, raised from the dead and then he'll go to heaven. He won't be with them anymore. So he's having this huddle. He's having this conversation. He says, guys, you got to listen to me. And he has this conversation twice in this one conversation because it was so important. He said, the number one thing I want you to know, this is my new command to you, is I want you to love one another the same way I've loved you. Like we've been a team, we've been a group, we've been life buddies, but now I'm leaving. And this is what you've got to do. You've you've got to love each other the same way that you've seen me love. Because that's the only way Christianity is going to work. And it's the only way a watching world will see that and know that this thing's for real. That, That was his heart. So then the question is, okay, then how do we love each other like that? How do we form relationships like that? How do we form friendships and marriages and small groups like that? Like, how do we really form that kind of connection? The disciples, it was easy, right? Because Jesus said, hey, what you've seen me do, that's what you do. But we weren't there. We weren't one of the disciples. So what do we do? Well, the good news is there's a guy named John who was one of those disciples. He was one of the people in Jesus's small group. And in the book of 1 John, we're going to be in 1 John 4, he says to this church, he writes to a church just like we're a church, and he says, hey, this is how, this is what that looks like. This is Jesus-style connection, Jesus-style relationships. This is what it means to love one another the way that Jesus loves. This is the way you form real-life buddies. It is not normal. It is not natural. It is rare, but it's way possible, but this is what it looks like. And so today we're going to hear what John says, and he's going to give us two big components of of this Jesus uh, way of loving that is really, really unique. And if we're open to it and we inject these two things in our relationships and our groups and our friendships, our marriages, it is revolutionizing. It is not normal. It's not natural. But God will help us do this, to love like Jesus loves, these two components. So 1 John 4, if you want to turn with me, if you have a like a physical Bible or your Bible app or something like that. In 1 John 4, he's going to give two qualities. The first quality is this. This is Jesus-style love at the basis of these life-buddy relationships. And that is the first one is active sacrifice. That's a way to define love. Love is active sacrifice. It's not just saying things. It's not just feeling things. It's actually doing something. Love does something. Love sacrifices. It says, I am committed to you to do whatever love demands, meaning I... 
I will set aside my comfort, my preferences, whatever for you. And that's what Jesus did. So John talks about it. First John four, nine. God showed how much he loves us by sending his one and only son. This is an important little concept. Love is not something that you just say. Love is something you do that people can see. That's what that God did something. He showed his love. God showed us how much he loved us. He didn't just say, I love you so much. He showed it by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Love is active sacrifice. Just like Jesus did, right? Just like God the Father did. So he says, God the Father, because God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's one and three at the same time. He's actually a small group himself. Kind of interesting, right? But he is. So if you think, is God in a small group? Yeah, he is a small group. Kind of. Okay, that's another sermon for another person, because it's complicated. Okay, so Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the Father sends, sacrifices his Son, sends his Son to the earth. The son sacrifices his life, dying on the cross for our sin. And John is saying that's what real love is. Real love is active sacrifice. And then he says, dear friend, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other the same way. That's what love is. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. So let's talk a little bit about what this Jesus-style love is, because it is really different than the way our culture views love and the way we've grown up experiencing, probably, love. Um, And I'll illustrate it with a marriage talk. So a number of years ago now, I heard what I think was one of the best marriage talks I've ever heard. And it was by a pastor in Atlanta, a guy named Andy Stanley. And all I remember from the whole message is one sentence. But that one sentence is worth it. So I'm in this church service, right? And he actually uses a TV like I do. And he puts on, he says, I'm going to give you the number one key to a great marriage. If you want a great marriage, every great marriage does this. If you want a great marriage, it's the number one key to a great marriage. And then he does the TV and it says the number one key to a great marriage is to make love. Amen, brother. Amen, brother. I like you. Because <laughs> that's what I said. I was like, yes, I love this church. Like, I love Chase Oaks, but this might be number two on my list of churches because I like this guy. Like, I'm glad I came to church. But Christy wasn't with me. That's kind of a bummer. So I was like, man, I got to make sure she, you know, podcasts this or watches this later online. Because the number one key to a great marriage is to make love. More sex. I'm all for it. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Let's go. You know, let's do it. I'm ready for it. Except there's this little troubling three dots. And then he gives the rest of it. He says, the number one key to a great marriage is to make love a verb. And that was his point, to make love a verb. What does that mean? Well, in our culture, we tend to think of love as a noun. Jesus-style love, biblical love, is not a noun. It's a verb. Biblically, love is a verb, not a noun. Love is a choice, not just a feeling. See, in our culture, we've grown up with the opposite of this. In our culture, we think of love as this, this thing out there, this, this, like a noun, like this feeling or this thing that just comes on us and then leaves us. And we're just sort of passive about like, we can't help it. So we talk about like in romantic relationships, we say, well, I fell in love. I didn't mean to. Just all of a sudden this thing just went bam and I fell in love, right? 
And then, so we, well, you gotta get married or you gotta pursue it, right? Even if you are married, you gotta pursue that other person that's not, because I fell in love and you gotta go with it. It doesn't happen every day. You, you gotta go, like, it's just this passive thing that happens. And then what happens? Well, then after a while, that feeling kind of goes away, maybe. Things get a little hard. And then what do you say? Well, we just fell out of love. I mean, it's good while it lasted, but then we just fell out of love. I mean, what are you going to do? You know, comes and goes, right? That's the way we view love. Or the love is this, this feeling. This, it, and that's not love. From a biblical perspective, love is not a noun. It's not something that happens to us. Love is something that we choose. And, and what we love is a commitment. It's not just a feeling. It's not just a commitment to be together. It's a commitment to say, and not just in marriage, in any kind of relationship, that my commitment to you is to make love a verb, is to actively sacrifice for you, is not just to be committed to you, but do whatever love demands. Whatever is best for you, no matter what it, no matter how it inconveniences me, that's my commitment to you. That's Jesus' kind of love. Now, we all know instinctively that that Jesus' kind of love is the kind of love that we really are created for, if we think about it, making love a verb. And the reason I know that is because we have a pretty good idea of how we are loved Meaning we, we sort of have in our system, in our body system, our brain and heart and all that, we sort of have this love-a-meter that in us that lets us know and we feel it all the time how people are loving us. And we don't care if they just feel something. We want them to do something, right? We don't care if they just say, I love you. If they don't back that up, if they don't show us, if they just say it after a while, we don't care what they say. Because it doesn't mean anything. It does if it's backed up. But if it's not backed up, we're like, wait a minute. And, and like in a relationship, since we're picking on marriage, we'll say that. I'm going to say in a marriage or even a friendship or anything. Like we have, we sort of have this idea, this love-a-meter. It, it's full and empty of how we're loving what we're doing compared to what the other person's doing. Right? So you think, well, you know, I keep doing all this stuff and I do all, you know, all this stuff like this in my marriage or in my friendship. Have you ever been in a one-sided relationship where you feel like you're doing it all and they're not doing anything? There's not, no, nothing coming back. And after a while, that gets kind of old, right? And after a while, you can start maybe getting resentful because you're like, here I am doing all this and that goober, that gooberess not doing anything and I'm doing everything around here and they don't do anything. And then, and maybe they feel that we're a little upset. So what do they do? They, they maybe, uh, buy flowers. To make up and you're like, I don't want your flowers. I can buy my own flowers. I don't need your flower. I just need you to do something around here. Right. I just need you to show me. Right. Don't just I, not buy. I mean, flowers are OK, whatever. But I, I'm allergic. anyway. I don't want those. I just want. Right. I just I mean, no, those are nice. But I want you to show me. Right. Look, we have that. We know that we sort of always have this idea of how we in our own minds. It's probably skewed pretty radically. But in our own minds of what I do for you versus what you're doing for me. And it kind of. And the way Jesus loved was different than that. The way Jesus loved is he flipped the love-a-meter. Is his love-a-meter was set not on how he was loved, but how he loved. And whether it was reciprocated or not, it's not that that's not important, but whether it was reciprocated or not, he continued to love. He set aside himself for others. He was selfless. That's what love is. The opposite of love isn't so much hate, it's selfishness. And love is saying, I'm going to put aside self and do whatever it takes to benefit you, to do what's best for you. And that's my commitment to you. It's, a, it's just a very, very different way to love, right? It's kind of like relating to Bruno Mars. 
You know, Bruno Mars, the singer, like, what did he say? He said, I will catch a grenade for you. That's pretty good. I'll, uh, I'll lay my head on a blade. You got it for you. I'll jump in front of a train for you. I'll drink bad lemonade for you. I'll put on a Band-Aid for you. Whatever he says, right? He'll do all this stuff because he's amazing. But, but Jesus even more so, okay? He, he, Jesus beats Bruno. And, and we're to be Bruno kind of people, okay? It just says, look, I am here for you. And what I'm going to measure, what I'm going to focus on is not being loved, but loving. Now, you know what happens when you do that in a relationship or when you do that in a small group and you're focused not on what's, what have people done for me, but what am I doing for them? That becomes contagious. It begins to take over a relationship, take over a group. Sometimes the person's so unhealthy it doesn't, and that's a whole other story and a whole other thing. But usually it, it takes over, right? Because isn't it easy to do stuff for people who do a lot for you? In fact, you're sitting there thinking, man, what do I do for them? They're so, they're so unbelievably kind and generous. What can I possibly do for them, right? And that begins to take over, and you do get your needs met. God will meet them if people don't, because it just becomes this contagious thing. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But the first, first thing here is active sacrifice that makes love a verb. That's what it means to be a life buddy. It says, hey, I'm, I'm with you, and I'm for you, and I'm committed no matter what to do whatever is best. But here's the other. And this one's a big one. Unconditional acceptance that catalyzes people to become better. John is going to talk about God's love as perfect love. Another way to say that is unconditional love. Unconditional love. Saying, look, I love you no matter what you do. That my love for you is not dependent on your performance. I just love you, period. And that's the way God loves us. But I think it's really hard to believe that. In fact, here's what John says in uh, 1 John 4. He says, we know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. I think it's actually 416, but we know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. He's saying, look, we know how much God loves us. That's that's pretty cool. He, I mean, he saw it for three and a half years with Jesus and he saw it up close. But he even he said, we have to put our trust in that. Um, I'm not sure I know how much God loves me. But what John is saying is that our relationship with God, what we put our trust in, is not our performance, his love. It's, it's not that, that my relationship with God is secure when I'm doing well. It's my relationship with God, whether I do well or not, once I open up my life to his love, because his love is perfect. His love is unconditional. The truth is there's not one thing you and I can do to make God love us more or less. But that's really hard to get. And I think that's why often, even though I may know intellectually that God loves me unconditionally, when I sin and I really blow it, I don't act that way. Because I feel like God hates me, right? I want to run away from God. How could, you know, he just, he's never going to use me. I'm a, I blew it. And some of you are right there right now. You're insecure in your relationship with God, even if you've begun a relationship with God, because of what you did last night or what you did last week or 10 years ago or whatever. And what John is saying is God doesn't love like that. His love is unconditional. It's not based on our performance. And once we understand God's unconditional love, it actually frees us to perform, to imperfectly uh, be better. Now, to help us get it, John is going to say, look, I know it's hard to get this. this. It takes faith. And he's going to give us two proofs of his love. Here's the first proof. is the proof of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Remember how I said God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's a small group and he's one at the same time. The Holy Spirit is God. And when you and I begin a relationship with God 
through faith in Jesus as he died for us on the cross and he offers salvation and forgiveness and all that as a gift, his presence in our life as a gift, we say yes. The first thing that happens is the Holy Spirit comes into our life. And so John says, and God has given us his God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. One of the ways God says, look, I want to I, I want to prove it to you that you're once you, you say yes to me, my relationship with you is completely secure because of my unconditional love, not because of your performance. And the first proof is the proof of the Holy Spirit. What that means is he places his Holy Spirit in our life, not just to be here, but to transform us. And Paul says in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. Meaning when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, we begin a relationship with God. He doesn't go away. He will complete what he started the way Paul talked about it. He uses the, the concept of a seal of a, like of ownership of commitment, like a signature. He also uses to help us get it that the Holy Spirit is like God's down payment. So let's say you go out and you buy a car and you put a down payment on that car. Or you put a down payment on a house. What are you saying is I'm committed to finish buying this house and here's my down payment as my guarantee. You and I may or may not follow through on that. We should, but we may or may not. But when God makes a down payment, when he makes a guarantee, he's going to do it. And what John is saying is the Holy Spirit is like God's guarantee. It's his down payment. It's saying, look, no matter what you do, once you commit to God, God commits to you. As Paul tells Timothy later, he says, even if you and I deny him, once we come to know him, we deny him. He will not deny us for he is faithful. Because our relationship with God is not based on our faithfulness, thank God, because we're not faithful. It's based on God's faithfulness. Okay, so that's the first one is, hey, we're completely secure. That's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I have a brother. His name is Steve. Lives in Birmingham. Seven years older. Love him a lot. And he's my brother. And what that means is, is even if Steve was completely cruel to me, he's not. But if he was, he used to be when we were kids. But if he was... You know, if he said, I don't ever want to see you again, I don't ever want to talk to you again, you're the worst person in the world, whatever, that's not going to change my commitment to him, my love for him. That's just going to make me want to pray for him and love him more. Right? That's, that's a brother. We're talking about a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The next proof is the proof of Jesus on the cross. Now, John saw it. And here's what he says. Furthermore, we... John was one of the eyewitnesses of the crucifixion. He was there. We have seen with our own eyes and now testify. We're telling you about this, that the father sent his son to be the savior of the world. We love each other because he loved us first. But John, John was the only disciple of the 12 that was actually at the cross when Jesus died. Judas bailed, you know, well, he didn't bail. He betrayed Jesus. The other 10 bailed because in fear and they run away. Uh, when Jesus was arrested and all that kind of stuff, they run away and hide. John was the only one who was there at the cross watching Jesus be crucified. Mary, Jesus's mom, was there because moms love unconditionally, too. Uh, and a few others. And but John saw it all. And what John is saying, I mean, he just never got over that. How could you? And what he's saying is the ultimate proof of God's unconditional love for you is Jesus dying on the cross long before you did anything for him. He loved you before you did one thing for him. He doesn't love you because of your performance. He just loves you, period. In fact, he was dying for your sin. He was dying for your imperfection. The Bible says while we are yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And here's the thing. Once you begin a relationship with God through faith in Jesus, and all, 
your relationship with God is secure. Satan, our enemy, would love to make you think that's not true. And, and would love to make you wallow in shame and think, I can't go to God. I, I've got to clean up my life first. I've messed up so much. He hates me. He, and, all. and whenever we get into that mode, that's not God. That's Satan. And we just need to close our eyes and say, okay, God, help me picture Jesus dying on the cross for me and for my sin before I did anything for him to remind me of what this is about, because that's what this is about. That's the way God loves. It's unconditional love. Because of that, here's what John says. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. There's no reason to fear when you have unconditional love. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced this perfect love. John is saying when we feel insecure in our relationship with God, once we've begun it, it just shows us that we don't understand God's love. Because perfect love casts out that fear. There's no insecurity. Once we know that there's nothing we can do with God's perfect, unconditional love to change it, then I'm completely secure. I don't have to be afraid. You say, well, does that mean then you just do whatever you want? No. In fact, it actually frees us up. It catalyzes us. It frees us up to be better. Once we understand we're not trying to measure up. Let me give an illustration of that. Um, when I was in elementary school, in, uh, have I mentioned I grew up in Alabama? I don't know if I have. And uh, so I did. I grew up in Alabama, a great place to grow up. And when my parents moved there, I think they probably freaked out a little bit because you're moving to Alabama. They were a little concerned probably about the school system and, and you know, the, is it good or not? It, it turns out in Huntsville where I grew up, it was really good, but um, they didn't know that. So they were freaked out a little bit. And then, um, you know, civil rights stuff in Alabama too in school. I mean, that's another thing that, you know, that, that was messed up in historically, obviously, and probably still now. But um, anyway, so they, they had some reasons to be concerned. So they, um, and my dad's a, a, literally a rocket scientist and he's an MIT rocket scientist. Okay. So he was concerned about um, that kind of stuff. So they put us in this school, a private school, not a Christian school, a private school that was really well known for its academics. And what they did in the school, um, starting in kindergarten, is they divided you into four groups, alpha, beta, gamma, delta. So alpha were the, you know, high capacity kids, I guess. And then you had the deltas at the bottom and then the other people in between. And I don't know how they figured that out in kindergarten, if they watched how you use scissors or something and said, you know, I don't know. But anyway, they put us in groups. So I was a gamma. And so alpha, beta, gamma, delta. I was in the gamma. Very happy in the gamma group. I had no problem being in the gamma group. Loved it. Um, in fifth grade, that changed. Because in partway through the first semester of fifth grade, we had to take these tests, IQ tests and different kinds of tests. You know, to, to, they wanted to make sure before you went into middle school and high school, they had you in the right thing because the stakes get higher. So we took these tests. And I must have had a good day or cheated or something because I must have done really well on these tests because the principal and other people called my parents in and they said, hey, we are sorry. Uh, we, we think we've had them in the wrong group these years. And uh, we'd like to move them to the alpha group. And is that OK with you? Nobody asked me, but is that OK with you? And they said, yes. So partway through fifth grade's first semester, I go into this new group, this alpha group. And most of the subjects, it really wasn't that big a deal, except math. Because math was very different in the alpha group than the gamma group. Because in the gamma group, we did what you're supposed to do with math. And that is you deal with numbers. That's what math is, right? Numbers. English is letters. Math is numbers. Right? You agree with me on that? And so, but they were doing algebra. Basically, algebra one in fifth grade. And I remember going in and thinking... 
this is really messed up. Like there's not, there's letters here. Like this is the wrong. I, I don't understand. There's letters and numbers together. And they're like, what is the value of X? I'm like, why is there an X? I mean, I don't even, why are you asking me? I don't understand. And so, you know, we're, I'm looking, it's like algebra to me was like uh, math and English got together and had a really ugly baby. There was like a, like a scary movie baby that head goes around and vomits everywhere. And you're like, yeah, you know, you don't want to look at that scary baby. And that's algebra. And, um, and I wouldn't, I mean, I was trying to get it. You know, this first week I'm in there, you know, numbers and letters and what is this? And, but a few days in, cause they'd been going for a while, we have a test. So I'm taking this test and I'm doing the best I can, but it's still, why is there a letter? I mean, I'm still at that, you know, place. And so I remember, uh, getting my grade for that test. Now, I've always overly been into good grades. I, I, it, it's always mattered probably too much to me when I was in school, but it did. And so I get my, and I'll never forget, I can still see the, like, like what it looked like. At the top, it said 37 in red. Got a 37. And man, I, I was really upset and ashamed and all that. So I get home from school, call my dad. He's at work. I said, dad, I, you know, I took a math test and Got to tell you about it because I got it's it's bad like like how bad like really bad and uh, he said well tell me about it and I said well I got a 37 and it, and I can still hear him say it this way because he said he, he was like it was a positive tone he said you got a 37 so that's amazing to me you realize that like here you went into a whole different kind of math algebra you just been in there a little bit. And you got 37% of it right? That's amazing. And it changed my whole demeanor. I was like, well, yeah, you know, that's how I roll. I mean, I'm, you know, pretty sharp. And, I, and, and he said, Jeff, the, the truth is, if you had gotten a seven or a zero or whatever, I'd be equally proud. It doesn't matter because you took the risk to go into that new class. The truth is, I didn't choose it. He did. But you took the risk to go into this new class. And it's going to get better and you're going to learn so much more. And so this is like the best 37 I've ever heard about in my life. So when we get when I get home tonight, we'll do anything you want to do. Go out, whatever. And we're going to celebrate. We're going to have a 37 party. We're going to celebrate the 37. And we did. You know what that did for me? It freed me to stay at it. Right. He could have easily squashed everything if he had said 37. Joneses don't make 37. You know, he could have done that kind of thing. Right. But he didn't, which freed me up to stay at it. And I did. And it did get better. Some of you feel like 37s with God spiritually. Some of you feel like 7s. And God, God will take it. And he'll celebrate it. The, the people I worry about aren't the 37s or the 7s. It's the 97s. Those of you who think you're a 97 or a 100... Truth is, not many of those kind of people stay in our church very long. <laughs> I don't know why, but they, you know, they're like, go to some other church of 97. We kind of attract 37s like me, but, um, but that's a whole other problem. And I think that's a, that's a bad, that's a worse problem. Okay. But 37s and 30, when you know that Jesus said, no, that, that's what I'm looking for. That is, he called it poor in spirit. Like when we know, yeah, that's where I'm at because God can work with that. And it's within that context of unconditional love that they were then freed to walk with him and do better. See, it's, and that's how, that's how he wants us to relate to each other. It's in a spirit 
uh, like Jesus did, where, he, where God does, where he says, come as you are, be transformed, make a difference. We say God accepts us as is. But he loves us enough that he doesn't want us to stay as is, right? He wants us to get better. And it's in the context of that, of that unconditional acceptance that we're free to do better and to make a difference. And so in our relationships, Jesus-style relationships, as we do life buddies, unconditional acceptance that catalyzes people to become better. Have you ever been in a group of people, friendship circle, small group, where you, you just knew you were loved unconditionally? And you didn't have to fake anything. You didn't have to make yourself look better than you are. You didn't, if you got a wrong answer, it was okay. You didn't, you didn't have to hide. You didn't have to sort of put on a facade because naturally we do. It, it's, it's called pseudo community. When we start a new group or friendship, we sort of have this facade and we don't like if people really knew what was going on, they wouldn't like, but that's not community. The Jesus style community says, no, we're fooey on that. We're just, we don't have time for that. We're just going to, we're just going to be open. In a group that when we share our deepest struggles, our deepest doubts, our sins, our addictions or whatever, don't go, <gasps> but instead go, hey, me too. Yeah, I mean, my thing looks a little different than your thing. But yeah, we're all 37s here. We're all sevens here. And, and, and we're going to help each other do better. That, that's what we're talking about. And I, I, I do mean intentionally, too, about doing better. It's not just accepting. It's helping each other. The Bible describes our relationship with God as a walk with him, like walking with him. We follow Jesus. What does Jesus do? He keeps moving. Elsewhere, the, the Bible says, yeah, we're walking with God as our relationship, which means there's always a next step. So when we're walking with Jesus and taking steps together in this kind of group, it does mean, hey, I accept you no matter what you're doing, but we're going to help each other in our walk. So if I see that you're sort of faltering in your walk, like if you're just sluggish and, you know, all that, then, okay, you're probably discouraged. Uh, maybe you're just tired. And so my job is to, it's just to encourage you. Or maybe you're just walking kind of funky, you know, and, and weird and, and to say, hey, and to come alongside you and say, you know, I don't know if you know how you come across to people. It's a little off-putting and I'm going to help you. Or maybe somebody it's just really downcast and they're just sort of stuck and, and, and it, it may be because they're grieving or they're sick and they need you to put your arm around them and walk you through it or carry them and bear that burden. Or sometimes somebody, and I mean, just think about people in your life. Sometimes people, they're walking with God and then they take a detour. It's a bad detour, a sin detour. We all do it. And sin detours lead to destruction. What God's path leads to life. And when you see that happen as a friend, my job is to say, huh, that's not going to go very well. Instead, it's to get in the way and to say, look, I'm going to love you no matter what. You can run me over, but I'm not going to make it easy. And if you do run me over and you go down this path of sin, uh, you, you know, leave your spouse, you whatever, you know, you go down that path that's making sense to you right now because you're allowing sin to make you stupid and go down the um, I'm just not going to make it easy for you. And if you go down this road, it's going to end badly, and I'll help you pick up the pieces and get back on path. I'd just rather not. I'd rather right now just say, you know what, I'm not going to let you do this, at least not easily, and get in each other's way. That's, that's what friends do. I love you no matter what, but I love you too much just to, you know, just to let you just go down that trail or whatever it is, right? So this is an active process, right? Unconditional love with some intentionality. And you put that together... These two things that we're talking about, active sacrifice that makes love a verb and unconditional acceptance that catalyzes people to come better. 
Can you imagine if you're in a group like that, a small group or a friendship circle, you can't help but grow, right? I mean, this is the kind of stuff that really not only makes life more enjoyable, but makes it really catalytic and makes us take off in our relationship with God. But we will not without it. And so as a church, we're actually built around these kind of relationships. Kids zone, starting with kids zone, is we are built around small groups. What happens in this large group is really cool, really important. It's a biblical thing, but it, doesn't, it can't make up for what happens in small group community. Our youth ministries have large group stuff, but they're built around small groups. Our adults, for you know, same way. And there's a reason for that, because that's how we're designed to do life. And if you're not in a group, we're going to talk about what if you are in a group. But if you're not in a group, uh, that's why we gave these little cards. So go ahead and pull this card out that you got when you came in. Like, I mean, actually do it. I'm looking at you. <laughs> uh, even up there, I can, I can see you up there. I, I mean, I love you even if you don't do it, but just act, humor me. Why not? I'm, I'm back after a long time. Um, so it's a... Uh, it's pretty easy, right? Name, phone number, and email address. And here's what's going to happen. If you're not in a group, this is a life-changing decision to choose to say, you know what? Yeah, I would love to talk to somebody about being in a group. Not sure I'm, you know, but I would love to talk to somebody. Put your name, phone number, and address. What will happen is not tomorrow, but next, the Monday after that, people are going to call you that night, pastors at our church, and just say, hey, love to talk to you about what's going on, how you'd like to be more connected. And and what kind of, if it is a group, what kind of group would you like? You know, what, you know, what time, what kind of, you know, whatever. Um, to kind of, because there'll be hundreds and hundreds of people getting into new groups. It's a perfect time to get into a group. And, and let me tell you, it's a life-changing decision. It's a defining moment kind of decision. Go ahead and start filling it out. And when you leave, uh, you can just, uh, at, the, at your campus, you either give it to a person or put it in a basket as you leave. But... Um, but I was reflecting on that this last week because, or not this last week, this last month, when I started study break, as I said, I went to Alabama, and, um, and I was there for a few days at the beginning of study break, and I'm driving, I drive by this house, this little duplex, pretty insignificant, a little, I mean, just a normal little house, except for me, it's an extraordinary place because that's where I decided to be in a small group when I was in eighth grade. There was a college student named Todd Tolls that formed a group of junior high and high school students. And I could have said yes or no. I was kind of on a bubble. I said yes and got into that group. And as I was driving by that place where we met for a small group, we're thinking, you know what? Every major decision other than marriage, every major decision that I made in my Christian life really happened in that little house and that group. Me deciding as a 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old, who I'm going to be, what my calling is, what my life's going to be about, what it means to follow Jesus. I mean, all of it came together there. And the reason it did is because of that group. And as I was driving by, I remember thinking, what if I hadn't gotten into that group? Because I almost didn't. Like I had sort of had two groups of friends. You know, I had my friends that weren't walking with Jesus at all. I and mean, they were running the other way as fast as they could. And then this group, and I decided to say yes. I don't, if I had said no, I don't know where I'd be right now, but I don't think I'd be walking with Jesus. I sure don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing here on this stage. And I'm so glad I did. I had no idea when I signed up for it what was on the other side of that. I had no idea this was a defining moment in my life. 
Just like, well, should I be in that group or not? And that's what's at stake. And so let me encourage you to see this as not just an insignificant decision, but a really big potential defining moment in your life. And for those of us who are in a group, like I'm in a life group already, we've taken a break for the summer. We're just about to get going here in a couple weeks again. This message has been really convicting to me because I realize, I think because I don't lead the group, I'm just in the group um, and I'm used to leading things, not just being in things, that I've become a very lazy life group member. I feel good when I show up. I mean, I, I, we try to show up every time we're in town, but I just feel like, oh yeah, I'm doing my job. That's not my job. My job in that small group is to actively love, to make love a verb, is to uh, uh, unconditional acceptance that catalyzes. It's always thinking. And so now this is my new commitment when I go back to life group is to say, man, I want to think about one person in that group that evening that I can encourage with some next. Maybe it's the next step they've talked about making. Maybe they're faltering in their step and they need encouragement, you know, like we talked about. Maybe they just said for a long time, yeah, I'd like to do this, you know, as a next step in their life to serve in ministry or do something. And they're not doing it. And for me to say, hey, how can I help you actually do that? Or next step in their relationship, their whatever. Just to be intentional. Well, God, what is one person I can encourage in their walk? This is how the Christian life works. We don't go it alone. You don't want to scuba dive alone. You can't do the Christian life alone. We need life buddies. So with that in mind, let's bow our heads together. And, you know, prayer is talking to God, and he's our father. He loves us. And so we're going to pray a little bit. We're going to talk to him. And I invite you to just do this in your heart, your own words. The most important connection that we've talked about is connection to God that Jesus made possible when he came and died on the cross that we talked about and sacrificed his life by dying on the cross for our sin so the guilt of sin could be removed, that we could be forgiven, and that he could then come into our life and transform and change us and use us to change the world. And when he comes in, he doesn't leave. He's committed to us. But he won't force his way in. He asks us to make a decision to say yes or no. And I know some of you right now, you're not ready for that yet. You've still got a lot of questions. That's great. I get it. But for some of you, this may be your moment to say, you know what? I want to say yes. I've still got some questions, but I'm just going to bring them with me. I, I want to say yes to God. And you just say, God, I, I know what I deserve, but you came so that I don't get what I deserve. And what you want to do is forgive me and begin to change me. And I say yes to a relationship with you. And the moment you do that, and some of you are doing that right now, he makes a commitment to you. And he's faithful to it. And then once you've done that, or for those of us who've already done that, step, it's an opportunity to think about your life buddies. Do you have them? And if you do, how intentional are you? Have you gotten lazy like me or are you doing better than me? And if you're not in a group, if you don't have that with me, just, just say, God, help me find the right group or better create the right group. And if you're in a group, just say, God, help me be the kind of person that will create the kind of community that everybody needs. Father, thank you for all that you want for us and that the Christian life is shared. It's about we and God, not just me and God. And so if God help us create the kind of community that you want us to create. In Jesus' name. Amen.